Hi everyone, welcome back to the History in 20 podcast. Today we'll be discussing part two of the Plantagenets mini-series and we'll be covering the third and fourth Plantagenet kings who are King John and Henry III. So if you're not sure what I do on this podcast, I essentially aim to cover anything history related within 20 minutes or so. You can find more information on the Facebook page by searching for History in 20 on Facebook or I've got an email address if you'd like to email me any suggestions. Uh, that's historyin20 at gmail.com. Obviously, likes, comments, shares, subscriptions, etc. are greatly appreciated on this YouTube channel. You can let me know what you think of this episode or the podcast itself in the comments section below. I also write a blog to accompany each episode, and you can find that at historyin20.blogspot.com. So on that note, let's make a start on today's episode. So, King John. Sure, most people have heard about him, but what do we actually know about him? Well, he was born on Christmas Eve, 1166, in Beaumont Palace in Oxford. He succeeded Richard I. He was his younger brother because Richard had no legitimate children. He was also Henry II's youngest child. Uh, he was coronated on the 27th of May, 1199, shortly after Richard's death. Uh, and he was married to Isabella, Countess of Gloucester, from 1189. That was an old in 1199. Then he was betrothed and married to Isabella, Countess of Angoulême, from 1200 until John's death. So it appeared from the outset that he was going to be an unpopular king. So according to the historian Nicholas Vincent, John had been spoiled by his mother, intimidated by his father, and had shown signs of unpleasantness from his early youth. And this comes from the fact that apparently when Henry II made John the overlord of Ireland in 1186, he apparently outraged the Irish kings by pulling their beards and laughing at them. So there's also a parody history book called 1066 and all that, and the section covering King John is just entitled John, an awful king. So even though it's a parody, it still does enforce the common perception that John was actually a bad king. But obviously that's open to discussion in your own opinions and might be able to shape that with this podcast. So less than a year into his reign, John divorced his first wife to be betrothed to the southern French heiress Isabella of Angoulême in 1200. She was only eight years old at the time. Uh, and she'd already previously been betrothed to a local baron, and he was so outraged that he openly rebelled against John. And John's 15-year-old nephew, Arthur of Brittany, also joined the barons in rebellion. Now, Arthur was John's older brother, Geoffrey. He was his eldest surviving son. Geoffrey died in 1186, as I mentioned in the previous episode. And many other contemporaries thought that Arthur actually had a better claim to the throne than John did, because he was the son of an elder brother rather than just the wicked uncle. But even so, John managed to crush Arthur's rebellion and almost in similar fashion to Richard III about 300 years later, the king's nephew was imprisoned and then he miraculously disappeared and he was never heard of again. So quite a few controversies early on in his reign there. Uh, but like his father and his brother, John spent most of his reign in Plantagenet territory on the continent until his circumstances changed in December 1203. So Philip II is still the king of France at this point and he invaded Normandy. But rather than staying to fight, John actually left on a ship to Portsmouth. And then on the 6th of December 1203, which ironically was almost 49 years to the day that Henry II had landed in England as the first Plantagenet king, Philip conquered Normandy. But the loss of Normandy wasn't entirely John's fault, because you have to look at it from a, a bigger perspective, that Henry II and Richard I had both left England for long periods of time. Uh, in fact, it was actually King Stephen's reign since England had last seen the most time of their king on the land. It's Stephen reigned from 1135 to 54. And Henry and Richard had also left huge financial dents in the crown. 
Uh, and this is probably the likely reason that John became an English king, because he was forced to spend his time in England building up resources uh, to attempt to recover Normandy. So he was like, duty-bound to do this as king of England. And by 1204 it just got worse, because Philip had overrun Normandy, Anjou, Terrain, Maine, and all of Poitou bar La Rochelle. And as the unfortunate circumstances would have it, Philip was now a much more formidable enemy than he had been in Richard's reign. So another problem with John is that he was notorious for arguing with the church. So in 1205 he clashed with one of the most formidable medieval popes of all time, Pope Innocent III, over an election over the seat of Canterbury. And in 1208 Innocent laid an interdict on England and Wales and he demanded that all church services were to be suspended for six years. So David Starkey essentially uh, describes this papal interdict as a clerical strike in which the clergy refused to say mass, bury corpses or marry couples. Papal relations just soured after that and in 1209 he was excommunicated but John was pretty clever about this because initially he was unfazed from this because he'd already confiscated the church's estates which had eased his financial problems somewhat but then it was only three or four years before he was back asking for forgiveness. And this was because in 1212 Philip had planned to cross the Channel which also coupled with the Baronial Rebellion which was known as the First Barons War and this was enough to scare John into realising how vulnerable he was to invasion and rebellion due to his excommunication. So he agreed to make peace with the church so that he could have a free hand to fight his enemies essentially. But this didn't come cheaply. John had agreed to surrender his kingdom, which was England and Ireland at this point, to the Pope and re receive it back from him as a feudal dependency. And he'd also promised an annual sum of a thousand marks to Innocent and his successors. So Henry Knighton, who's a 14th century chronicler, he wrote that John had turned himself from a free man into a slave for this submission to the papacy. But nevertheless, because he'd agreed to this and the papacy helped him sort of financially as well, John managed to gather an army and led them to Poitiers in 1214, which really was almost 10 years after his territory had been lost. But he was defeated at the Battle of Bouvines on 27th of July 1214. The battle was a huge gamble from the onset because he'd put all his resources into it. England was just about bankrupted and they essentially it was a they had to win it and they didn't. They were close to winning at one point because Philip II apparently had been thrown off his horse. But the French army was bigger, better trained and they fought back and just overwhelmed the English. And now at this point they've lost. John's at the mercy of his subjects, he could do absolutely nothing. Um, initially, luck seems to be on John's side though. Because in order to have a successful rebellion, particularly in the medieval period and probably now as well, rebels require leadership. But there were no obvious leaders for them at the time. All of John's brothers were dead, because there wasn't a rival brother or king to turn to. Uh, Prince Arthur had been, let's say, eliminated <laughs> about ten years before this. And Prince Louis, who was the son of Philip II, was a Capetian prince. who's from the Capet family in France. So he's hardly an attractive anti-king rebel leader, because he's going to be the king of France anyway. But instead, the rebels actually devised a new form of revolt, which was a programme of reform. So the rebels captured London and met John at a place near Windsor called Runnymede. And they presented him with this document, which is what John's most famously remembered for, and it's called Magna Carta. The document was, as the historians John Gillingham and Ralph Griffiths put it, a hostile commentary on some of the more objectionable features of the last 60 years of Plantagenet rule. Which, if you look at it, it essentially is. I know David Starkey's written a book on Magna Carta and he has a, a transcribed version of it in there. That might be of interest if anyone wants to look into that. Uh, so attempts to implement Magna Carta, which obviously was unacceptable to John because he's given away power to these barons from it, 
this led to further debates, quarrels and revisions of it. And John again appealed to Pope Innocent III, saying that he'd been forced to sign it. And actually, amazingly, Innocent actually agreed and declared Magna Carta null and void. And that was it from the Barons' perspective. Civil war broke out. The First Barons' War is in full swing. The rebels even contacted Louis and invited him over to England, Prince Louis, and he came. He arrived in England in 1216, May 1216, and that was enough to make John concede eventually. So on the 19th of October 1216, John died. Uh, Starkey says he was unmourned and unloved, and he left behind his nine-year-old son, Prince Henry, as his successor. 13th century chronicler Matthew Paris stated that foul as it is, hell itself is made fouler with the presence of John which is one of those contemporary opinions that has, unfortunately for John, survived through the ages to sort of illustrate how we imagine most contemporaries felt under John's rule. What other legacies did he leave behind? Well, Paris's statement is a whole one in its own that suggests his reign was absolutely woeful, and that seems to be true for the most part with regard to his typical Plantagenet rage and personality on top of England's territorial losses. Historian Norman Davies argues that John lost the trust of his subjects through repeated acts of tyranny, lost the Duchy of Normandy through defeat, and lost the initiative in English politics through the concessions of Magna Carta. But interestingly, when you look at contemporary accounts, or later medieval accounts of John's reign, his John's submission to Pope Innocent III was actually the central issue in the history of his reign to many medieval chroniclers in comparison to his social or domestic policies, or looking at his attitude, his loss in Normandy, the outbreak of civil war, Magna Carta... That submission to Innocent III, to medieval chroniclers, is seen as worse than his submission to the Pope. Um, so, for example, in Thomas Gray's Scala Chronica, which was written in the 14th century, uh, the Eulogium Historarum, and even in John Capgrave's 15th century Chronicle of England, which obviously highlights the importance of religion to the chroniclers of this time, and it's likely that only recently historians have begun viewing these policies like I said, loss in Normandy, Magna Carta, civil wars, worse than his submission to the Pope, probably due to societal changes and religion having less of an impact uh, today as it did then. So it also didn't help John's cause that he came after a largely favoured and romanticised warrior king in Richard I and a seemingly harmless, harmless king in Henry III, which makes him seem all the more unsuccessful, selfish and evil. But as ever with Plantagenet kings, nothing is as easy as it seems, and that is definitely the case for Henry III, who's the next king. So what do we know about Henry III? Well, <clears throat> he's born on the 1st of October 1207 in Winchester Castle in Hampshire in England. He succeeded John as John's eldest son. Uh, he was coronated twice actually, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then he was married to Eleanor of Provence on the 14th of July, 14th of January 1236 at Canterbury Cathedral. So despite being named after his grandfather, Henry III actually bore very few similarities to Henry II. So Nicholas Vincent states that he's one of those unfortunate kings famed neither for great wickedness nor for outstanding worth. So essentially that is what Henry III's reign is about, so if you want to stop listening there, fair enough. It's a very uh, typical overview of Henry III and a largely true one, because even though he, he ruled England for 56 years, which is the longest of any of the Plantagenet kings, he's still one of the most understudied Plantagenets and very few Modern biographies have actually appeared on him in recent years. So he's mostly known for the longevity of his reign, his enthusiasm for building churches and castles, and his infatuation with Edward the Confessor. And I found Henry III was one of the hardest Plantagenets to cover because he's the one I know the least about. But there's not really a great deal written about him, but 
we'll go ahead. So hopefully get it covered in the next ten minutes. So, so he was only nine when he ascended the throne on John's death. Um, he was coronated immediately in Gloucester Abbey, which was a clear attempt to prevent the barons organising a coronation for Prince Louis in Westminster Abbey, where Louis might be officially received as king. So obviously the question of Magna Carta hadn't disappeared yet. It was reissued in 1217 and the idea of Parliament was born. So the king as the highest member of the council by which England was governed. So even though Henry had very little say in the early years of his reign, because he was a minor, so he was governed by a body of representatives, his reign initially appeared to be one of success from the outset. So the ageing English regent, William Marshall, who I could do an entire other podcast on, he was victorious at the Battle of Lincoln on Saturday 20th of May 1217 against Prince Louis's forces, while Hubert de Burr, who was the Justiciar of England, was victorious at the Battle of Sandwich off the coast of Dover, where he intercepted a Capetian fleet on the 24th of August 1217. So Henry's reign's off to a good start under his advisers. But as ever, because it's a lot of people fighting for one position, the relations between his advisers soon soured because they're all fighting for personal and political gain. So in particular, Hubert de Burn, Peter de Roche, who's the French-born Bishop of Winchester, they clashed. And in 1223, de Roche attempted to persuade Pope Honorius III to rid Henry's minority of excessive governors. So this plan backfired and it was eventually de Burr who edged de Roche from power. And it wasn't until Henry was 19 that he was declared of age and fit to rule independently. So obviously Henry felt it was his duty and wanted to recapture Plantagenet territory that had been lost during his father's reign, but none of his advisers had any particular enthusiasm for this because none of their families had any lands in France, so Henry tried to persuade them and he knew they didn't want to come. They had very lukewarm enthusiasm for it. Uh, so they were constantly arguing with each other and Henry about going to France and amidst one of these quarrels, Prince Louis, who'd now become King Louis VIII of France, captured La Rochelle and then he threatened to take Gascony in 1224. So finally, in 1225, an expedition was led out from England which consolidated the position in Gascony but made no attempt to recapture Poitou. And after 1224, Gascony was the only territory that remained in Henry III's hands from what Henry II, Richard I and even John had briefly held. So the 1230s were Henry's most peaceful years and for that reason alone, they're probably his most successful years as kings so contemporaries wrote pretty favourably about him, including Matthew Paris, but this is pretty debatable because Paris did make friends with Henry, and he tells us in parchment, which was presumably not shown to Henry III, that Henry was actually interested in the writings of Chronicles and often asked Paris to show him what he'd been writing. So we say the writing favourably about him, but Paris definitely wouldn't have shown anything or any documents which wrote critically about the crown. Um, and there's more cultural developments which came out in England in the 1230s. So in 1235, Henry was gifted three leopards, which is probably a translation error because of their geographical distribution. So we probably assume they're lions, actually, at the time. He was gifted these by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. And they were kept in the Tower of London at the time. And they fascinated the locals, who'd obviously never seen anything like this, and they had to pay to come to see them, or alternatively bring a cat or dog to feed to them. So this collection of animals grew, and it's called the Mongerie, which eventually became London's first zoo. So King Hakon IV of Norway gifted Henry a magnificent white bear, which is obviously likely a polar bear, which is in 1252. That was kept in a big metal chain and collar, and it was actually allowed to swim and hunt for fish in the River Thames. And then Louis IX of France gave him an African elephant in 1255. So I thought that was just a little interesting side note, that Henry III is responsible for London's first zoo. I'd actually like to know who put the collar on the polar bear, because that would have been a pretty difficult task, wouldn't it? 
but <laughs> without anaesthetic. Uh, but the onset of the 1240s brings about a different tone in Henry's reign. So the construction of Westminster Abbey had begun in 1245 and it almost bankrupted Henry. It wasn't to be complete for another 25 years. But due to Magna Carta, the barons began to have more of an influence in these years. But things again took a turn for the worse when Henry invited his half-siblings over from France in 1247. So the Lacinians, which are Henry's half-siblings and their families from his mother's previous marriage, they automatically assumed positions of political importance, much to the barons' distaste. So the barons didn't appreciate that foreigners could come and automatically assume governmental positions due to their social status. Uh, and they found themselves a leader uh, to contest this notion in the form of another one of English history's most famous names, Simon de Montfort. So ironically from the Baron's perspective, de Montfort was a Frenchman. He'd been Earl of Leicester since 1231 and Henry made him his governor of Gascony. He married Eleanor, Henry's youngest sister, in 1238. And Henry actually admired de Montfort but the feeling wasn't mutual. De Montfort felt that Henry was dispensable while he was not. And in 1252, their relationship collapsed when Henry sacked de Montfort from his position in Gascony. Now, it was a grave tactical error on Henry's behalf because de Montfort inadvertently became the ideal leader figure for the barons who were still annoyed that the Lacinians were in high positions of power. Uh, so de Montfort became an ideal leader figure for them. And Henry had also in 1252 to 54, uh, Pope Innocent IV had offered Henry the Kingdom of Sicily, so Henry accepted on his second son, Edmund's behalf, in 1254. But Sicily was already held by Manfred, an illegitimate son of Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor, and Henry agreed to finance the conquest of Sicily and pay off the, Pope debt, the Pope's debts, which was 135,000 marks. At this point, the barons had had enough, it took the governmental power out of Henry's hands and it resulted in another far-reaching programme of reform. So firstly, the Provisions of Oxford in October 1258 asserted the authority of the barons' representation in the king's government and also demonstrated the barons' ability to press their concerns in opposition to the monarchy. The next year, the Provisions of Westminster in October 1259 reinforced the earlier provisions as well as further in taxation reforms. So Henry was outraged that power had been taken out of an adult king's hands. It had been taken out of his hands when he was a boy. And England teetered on the brink of civil war. Uh, this culminated in the period known as the Second Barons' War, which was from 1264 to 67. So de Montfort led the rebels against Henry. Fortunately for the rebels and unfortunately for Henry, Simon de Montfort had been a crusader and he crushed Henry's forces at the Battle of Lewes on the 14th of May, 1264. So Prince Edward, Henry's eldest son, he fought valiantly and he won his area of the battle, but de Montfort's forces were too well organised and defeated Henry's army. So Prince Edward escaped from captivity at Lewes and he raised another force over the course of a year, and 15 months later the two forces met again at the Battle of Eversham on the 4th of August, 1265, and this time Edward was successful. It was a great example of his leadership, which was to come in his reign later on. Because not only did his army defeat de Montfort's army, but importantly for them, Simon de Montfort was killed and dismembered on the battlefield. So despite the threat of de Montfort being no more, after 1265, the civil war still lingered on until 1267, until the final pockets of resistance were picked out. And the Statute of Marlborough, uh, passed in 1267, effectively ended the Second Barons' War, just like the 50 years ago, the, the 1217 signing of Magna Carta had ended the First Barons' War, and it brought civil war in England to an end as well. So some contemporaries have uh, actually compared Simon de Montfort to Thomas Beckett, but 
that's quite a bold claim and we could talk about that in another podcast. So by 1269, Westminster Abbey had finally been completed and it was, as a lot of historians say, it was the grandest church in Western Europe. Henry nearly bankrupted the crown, but he had left a monument to unite Parliament and royalty in a magnificent church in the centre of London. And at the heart of the abbey was a shrine to Edward the Confessor. So Henry III died in Westminster on the 16th of November 1272, aged 65. His 56-year reign had seen two civil wars, but it also seen the building of Westminster Abbey. It had seen further taxation and baronial reforms, and even the introduction of exotic animals to England and a fairly agreeable middle ground between the King and Parliament. So, although Parliament did plague monarchs for the majority of English history, Henry III shouldn't be seen as a boring king just because he wasn't a warrior or involved in huge controversies. So, Henry's eldest son, Edward, succeeded him and started the Edwardian period of the Middle Ages, Edward I, II and Third, a period which brought about changes in warfare, politics and domestic policy that had never been seen before. And Plantagenet focus also shifted from France to Scotland, and a war on the northern frontiers of the Plantagenet Empire erupted, but we'll have more of that next time. So thanks for listening again. Uh, Really appreciate your support and tuning in and stuff, and hopefully the next one will be up next week. Thanks very much. See you next time.